This is episode 17 of The Janet Lewis Show. In the podcast, I'll be talking with people who have tapped into what they love and are living the life they imagined. Or maybe they didn't imagine it, but they've become super successful at what they're doing. They've been able to figure out what gives them energy or makes them happy and turn it into a business, or they found a career that allows them to shine. We're going to talk about their life story, how they got to where they are, and what has influenced their journey. Today, we're talking with Bobby Umer, president of Ray Allen and CEO of DYPV. Ray Allen is a transformational training organization whose mission is to discover, inspire, and develop leadership. DYPV, or Discover Your Personal Brand, helps individuals and organizations use personal branding to create more focus, alignment, and impact with their work. So exciting, both of those. (laughs) Um, Bobby is a passionate advocate for values-based leadership, building your personal brand, and employee engagement. He is one of Inc. Magazine's top 100 leadership speakers, alongside such noteworthy giants as Richard Branson, Brene Brown, and John Maxwell. Bobby is also a five-time TEDx speaker and a social media influencer with over half a million followers. He has been named as the second best business coach to follow on Twitter and the fourth best leadership influencer according to Cred. Bobby is an author of three international books, including a number one bestseller. He is also a frequent Huffington Post contributor and is a host of a weekly tweet chat called Power of Connection. Bobby has also recently been named a top seven networking guru to follow. He's recognized as a thought leader in networking, social media, and personal branding. Um, so when I was researching Bobby in more depth, I think I discovered this man must not sleep because he has accomplished so much and not just one thing at a time, like they seem to be all along the same time or multiple things at once. So Bobby started out as an aerospace design engineer from, for Bombardier and has made his way into transformational training and professional speaking. I am really looking forward to hearing more about Bobby's journey today. So Bobby, thank you for joining me. Well, I'm excited to be here, Jen. Thank you very much. Yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm really excited to do this because ever since I saw Woo-hoo. you, yeah, like I saw you um, speak at Haste and Hustle probably about three or four years ago. Yes, yes. Yeah, and you were talking about networking and connecting and cultivating relationships. And one of the reasons why you were so memorable to me is because first of all, in your talk, like you're super funny, like really funny. And you're also very engaging, like the stories that you share or that you embed into your content actually really raise the level of engagement with your audience, which Mm -hmm. is a secret passion of mine. So I appreciate uh, how well you are at your craft and how you get people engaged. Um, The other- That was a very fun, that was a very fun 12. It's amazing. uh, that was an amazing 12 minutes. I was only on stage for 12 minutes. So the fact that I could embed stories as I'm talking, being engaging, I, I'm, I'm delighted that it resonated. Yeah, but you're so, like, it was so impactful. Like even, and that's the thing that people need to know is it doesn't need to be an hour long. Right. You can be impactful in two minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes, whatever it is, right? Um, and the other thing in your delivery is, you know, you make it feel like to the audience member, you make it feel like, oh, we're just in your living room having a chat. And like, he's speaking right to me, which I think is a skill in itself, right? Yep. 
Um, but the other thing that I loved is at the end of your talk, you gave some very like concrete, actionable items that people could take away and implement and give it a try. And like the biggest one that stood out to me was, um, and you kind of made jokes about it, about people going to like a networking event and they get someone's card and then they never contact the person. Right. And I think you're, you're like, why even go to the event <laughs> you know, if you're not going to connect? And uh, you gave some good tips on like, not just um, connecting via LinkedIn, but also connecting with purpose, like making yourself more memorable, which I think a lot of people need to know. So I, I'm really looking forward to hearing your journey because I think you have so much experience in so many different areas. And I'm sure that some of them are building blocks to where you've gotten today. So why don't we start off with a bit of your history, like where you grew up, uh, what you were passionate about as a young boy, and then we can move into like how you went from aerospace to speaking on stage. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in New Brunswick on the East Coast of Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, we lived in a small town. I mean, not a, not a large, not a small, super small, but it was like, you know, a town of about 100,000 people. Uh, it's one of the biggest cities in New Brunswick, but New Brunswick is a very small province. And, uh, you know, um, my family was there. And also my cousins, uh, we had some cousins who came over this. We were the first ones that kind of entered in Canada. And I was the first one of my, of my family's generation born in Canada. And uh, it was a pretty, you know, simple, nice life. I mean, my dad worked nine to five and my mom was a homemaker. And I spent all my days outdoors playing in the streets, usually playing ball hockey, going in the woods, you know, just playing, playing lots of sports. Um, you know, I was always a very social kid, very social with everybody, including grownups and kids. Um, definitely often would take on a leadership role. I, I myself and my cousin. So my cousin was my, my best friend growing up. So the two of us would always take leadership roles and plan clubs and plan outings and whatnot. Um, and that's kind of how uh, we grew up. And it was, it was nice. I, but, I, but I was one of the very few brown guys in my school. Like there was I know, another guy in a different grade, but that was it. Um, there was just myself. And so that was noticeable sometimes, but otherwise sometimes not noticeable. But uh, it didn't really matter to me because I was pretty much... Uh, as my mom put it, you know, very white. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was quite Westernized and, uh, and that's fine. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a really great, great way to grow up, growing up in a, in a place where I was outside all the time and, you know, be very independent, um, you know, doing some really cool enriching things that I think a lot of kids nowadays don't get except when they go camping. And I had that every day. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when you said uh, Halifax or Nova Scotia, I was like, that totally makes sense. Because New Brunswick, actually. New Brunswick. Like everyone yeah. you meet from the East Coast has this um, personality about them that is just so giving and so friendly. Like it's that it's that down-to-earth homey feeling, you know. I yeah. know I get it. <laughs> A lot of us are like that here. <laughs> yeah, totally. I was like, oh my god, this all makes sense. <laughs> so okay, you're in uh, school. What was your favorite subject in school? Oh, uh, definitely math. Uh, I loved math. I was definitely, uh, definitely a math nerd. Um, you know, I, I had one of the things that happened, uh, my dad had taught me math before I even entered kindergarten. So I was actually doing oh. mathematical problems at home. Uh, you know, I, I remember this because I remember when I entered grade one, I was really learning how to uh, subtract three digit numbers and I learned the carryover for subtraction, which I wouldn't cover for another year or two. And so, yeah, I was, I was quite ahead of the curve when it came to, uh, the math part and I think that's 
probably what helped me help propel me to uh, to well, eventually a lot of people, a lot of people know this, but eventually I skipped a grade. So in grade five, I skipped a grade uh, because I was so far ahead of my class. And uh, yeah, it was great because I got to I got to be I was a year younger than everybody else. <laughs> And so, uh, so you're already getting ahead of everyone then too. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, math, yeah, math. I love math. Math was fun, but I also love. I mean, I love. I love learning. I mean, I love learning. Like I was. I I remember memorizing the Guinness Book of World Records because I was like just a nerd about that kind of stuff. So like, you could tell me, you know, I, I knew all the records for like, you know, tallest man, heaviest man, you know, shortest person. Like I had all these records that I'd memorized, and so that was something I was fascinated with. It also came from, you know, playing hockey, being a hockey fan. So I memorized all the hockey records. And so, like, I, I was interested in lots of things, uh, history, social studies, you name it. There wasn't, there wasn't really anything that I wasn't into. I, I can't think of anything that I wasn't into. I was really, and I remember one time in grade five, they introduced this whole new um, section called See and Think. And it, it was run by the grade seven teacher. And he would take all the grade seven, six, fives, and fours together. And they do this thing where... They would look at news items of the day and just talk about them. And I remember all oh, this is fascinating. I used to love giving my opinion. And, and he, I remember him being like, uh, he, he'd ask like random questions about, you know, different people. Like he's like, you know, I remember, and I remember one where he's like, talk about, you know, the Pope is the leader of the Catholic Church. And it's like, who's the leader of the, you know, the Protestant one? And I was like, I think it's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it's like, it's like, right. He's like, how do you know this? I, was like, I don't know. I just, I just, I just, I'm a nerd. I read these things, you know. I used to read the Encyclopedia Britannica, you know. We used to have this oh, yeah. book of the year. So they, there's the annual book of the year and I would read everything about it because I just thought it was so fascinating. So like, yeah, I was totally just pouring over stuff and, and I love learning. So um, if you like, so math was obviously number one. Yeah. Um, what were you doing outside of school? Like, did you participate in sports? Did you belong to any clubs? You mentioned that you and your friend would organize things. What are some of the things yeah, that you organized? So, I mean, yeah, so we... My parents weren't that uh, organized with getting me involved in official league sports. Uh, one time they finally got me involved in a soccer league and I did that for two years, but I didn't really do much. Otherwise, I played ball hockey every day from when I was four until I was 12. I, you know, I played baseball, I played, uh, I played badminton, like I played a lot of sports. I played, uh, I, played, I played baseball at school, you know, and ball hockey at school. So I was mostly just doing that kind of stuff. I didn't actually play any organized stuff. Although, you know, it might've been kind of fun to do that. And one thing I didn't do, which I wish I had done is I never learned how to swim. So I remember <sighs> going, going to swimming lessons for like a year or two. And then eventually I gave up because I was, you know, we went like once a week and I, outside of that, I didn't know swimming. And so I didn't really get very good at it. And by the time I was nine, I remember I was in a class with one seven-year-old and a bunch of five-year-olds. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I was just embarrassed. And, <laughs> oh, and, so, no. and so I quit and I never learned how to swim. So it's uh, kind of a regret I have from my childhood. Yeah, like swimming. Um, I grew up in Georgia Bay. So okay. swimming is kind of like a requirement because you're always around the water and yeah, you're scared yeah. of it, right? Um, but yeah, definitely an essential skill for sure. But you mentioned that you quit. Like I, you don't seem like the type of person that quits many things. Are there, is there anything else you can think of in your life that you, you... That I quit? Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, I think I've always been very ambitious and a bit of a go-getter and, you know, I'm the first to try to step up to do something. Um, but, you know, I think that when it comes to like fear, I mean, the swimming thing at a certain point, I mean, there was also issues around body, body shame and sure. things like that. So like I had issues around that. I, I did have shame around the fact that I was a nine-year-old in a 
class of five-year-olds and I, I just didn't want to do anymore. So uh, I would say uh, I'm also stubborn. So I didn't see this quitting. I was like, look, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm firm. I'm not doing it. Yeah. And that was the end of it. And then my parents couldn't make me do it. And <laughs> I just didn't. And so I, I'd say I was more stubborn than being a quitter per se. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah like you yeah. decided that you tried it and you're like, this is not for me. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's important to learn when to let things go and to pivot or, or whatnot. Oh, good point. That's a good point. Yeah. So um, how many children like um, do you have in your family, brothers, sisters? Yeah. So I have an older brother and older sister. So my brother's four years older. My sister's six years older. And Ooh, so, so you're a middle child. Well, I was I was third of four. And so for long, so I was youngest child. So there was those idea of, oh, Bobby's really spoiled. And, and they, they were a bit older than me. So they were always ahead of me. Like when I was in elementary school, my brother and sister were in high school and junior high. So they were always way ahead of me. And they were, they were close. I was kind of by myself. Then my brother was, my younger brother was born eight years later. So he was way younger. So I was definitely a classic middle child because I was right in between all of them. Um, and so I think I became classic middle child with my rebellious tendencies, um, which is something I still have today. <laughs> I'm also a middle child too, so I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's move into like obviously you went to high school, a smaller local high school. How did you end up making the leap to go to school in Montreal? Because you went to McGill, right? Well, yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, uh, well, I mean, our school is actually pretty big. We have 1,800 students for three grades. It's a really big school. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, it was really big. It was the second biggest in the province. So um, you know, it was, but it was good. I mean, it was a great school and lots, I had lots of friends and did a lot of activities. I think that, uh, I, I didn't know at the time, but pretty soon it became obvious to me internally, or maybe at a subconscious level that I need to get away from my home, get away from, you know, be living at home. And I remember what the, the, the catalyst for this was in grade 10. I went to a French immersion camp for like five weeks. And I basically living away from home at a, at a university campus with um, like hundreds of hundreds of other students. And I just found it so amazing and so free to be who I was. And because uh, I, I often live a double life with my, my, my family. So I, it was so free to be who I was and have fun. And I just loved it. I found it intoxicating. And when it was done, I was so I was bawling when I left. And I was like, you know what? Um, I really love this. So when I started applying to universities, I remember getting accepted to the local university. Uh, actually, actually, what happened was, you know, there was the expectation because my sister went to the local university. Uh, my brother went away to Dalhousie in, in Halifax. And I remember visiting him there. And I was like, oh, man, your life sounds, this, this, this looks so cool, man. Like, you get to do all this cool stuff with your friends. And you go to the arcade. And you go to this club. And I was like, I, I, I love this. I, I want to do this. So, so when I applied, first off, I secretly didn't apply for the local university. I applied for the one, Fredericton, which at least was a little bit further away. And then I applied for all the ones that were far away, Dalhousie, and then all the ones in Cuthbert uh, in Ontario, and then, and then McGill. And, um, and then that summer, I went to another program, which was amazing. It blew my mind. It's called Shad Valley. And that was like such an enriching experience. I was like, man, I, I need to be on my own living in res. And so uh, luckily what happened was that uh, McGill offered me the biggest scholarship. So I was like, it, it, it became easy to you know, pivot towards doing that one uh, because I got scholarship from them and from Western. And I was like, well, I think that's scholarship for UNB. So I guess I can't go to, you know, New Brunswick. Uh, <laughs> I was looking forward to going to a, a, a bigger city. And, and to be honest, like uh, I had, I'd heard bad things about U of T and I was like, I'm not sure I want to go to Toronto and McGill and Montreal just sounded so much more fun. And so I, just, and my cousin was going to the one I grew up with, that was my best friend growing up. Yeah. 
he was going there too. So we both went together. Oh, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because I'm from a small town and, you know, people talk about the city, like mm. Toronto, the city, who wants to go right. to the city? And, you know, you hear that all the time growing up. And so sometimes, uh, you know, I didn't ever expect to live in Toronto, but I graduated from McMaster and then I went and lived in South Korea for two and a half wow. years. And then I came back and I went to U of T Teachers College. Um, so I lived in Toronto and it was never planned. And especially because when you're younger, this stuff gets ingrained in your mind. Like, why would you want to live in the city? Why would you want to live in the city? But I actually love Toronto. Like, I think it's a great city. Yeah, and, and I think I didn't know at the time, like, you know, I'm not, a, I wasn't as well planned as young people are nowadays when they plan their futures. It's, it's actually quite, <laughs> both both kids and their parents are heavily involved in their future. And I, and I, I wasn't at, at all. I, mean, I applied a couple of American schools and I did the SATs. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and, uh, and now when I went from a small town, New Brunswick to big city, Montreal, I could totally see myself in any big city enjoying myself. I, if I went to UFT, I would, I would have had a great time, but McGill was really good. So I, I definitely, it was, I, and I didn't really think about much until I got there and started immersing myself. And I was like, okay. And after a while, I think I was homesick for just one semester, really. Yeah. And after that one semester was over, I just loved being there and I did everything I could to be in Montreal. And so um, when you were at McGill, um, you also, is that when you also discovered your love for theater or did that come a bit later? No, the theater love actually came early in high school. So what happened was, um, uh, it's funny because I was a late bloomer when it came to musical theater and singing and acting. Um, you know, a lot of people were doing when they're kids. I mean, I would do fun stuff with my, with my, with my siblings and we, we, we do plays or whatever, but nothing significant. I watched a lot of television and movies. I was a huge movie and TV addict. I loved movies and television. And uh, so in grade 10, I remember I was working on the, I was, I was an usher for the play. And I saw the play and I was like, wow, this looks like, what a fun thing to do on stage. I could, oh, I can never do that. But then, but then again, me and my cousin, we're both ushers. He was one of my best friends. And we said, why don't we applaud? Why don't we like, audition next year? And so in grade 11, we auditioned for the musical. And we both got in. Oh. And uh, yeah, and, and uh, I was like, okay. And uh, it was just a small part, nothing major, like, you know, the cat in the chorus. But, uh, it, oh, it was fun. It was so fun. I was like, this is amazing. And so I was like, okay, I, I got to do this again. So then I did it next year, and then I got a nice good, a nice good part. Uh, not the lead, but a, a good, uh, juicy part that, you know, got attention. And then, I could, and then when I went to you know, McGill, um, you know, I, I wasn't really into all the engineering stuff, because that's what I was in. And so I decided to, to put my time and energy into the, it was an operatic company, the Savoy Society. And uh, one of my best buddies there got in. And so the next year I, I saw a show, I was like, well, I'll go to audition next year. And then I got it next year. And, uh, the rest is history. That was really where I did that for five years. Got, and I got, after the first year, I got a, my, my first major lead role uh, because at that point I discovered my voice. At the time I didn't really know how to, I, I mean, I sung, but I didn't know how, how well I could sing. I'd, be, I'd sing like, right. you know, I'd sing like with, like, you know how you sing with your speaking voice, you know? Hey, how's it going? Na, 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 na. <laughs> but but when I when I did that first operetta, the parts of Penzance, I learned to discover my my baritone voice. You know that whole the whole thing. And I was wow. like, oh, okay. So then I discovered my baritone, and then when I auditioned the next year, I got the lead role, and then I never back. I always got lead roles after that because I knew how to sing and how to use power. And uh, so that yeah, that was kind of a, the start of everything. That's amazing. So you said, okay, so I was just laughing a little bit because you're like, yeah, I wasn't even, I wasn't really into the uh, engineering stuff. 
But then you end up working for Bombardier. Well, I had a, so. I had a degree. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, I went into, I went into engineering because uh, you would talk about subjects. I was, my best subject were math and physics, bar none, right? Like in high school, I had a 98 in physics, right? And, wow. and I had, and I had a 97 in math. So like ridiculously high marks. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I got the scholarship because of that stuff. So I was like, you know, let me go into engineering. I didn't think about how I wanted to work or what it would look like. And then once I was in, uh, and I found the university hard, I didn't do as well in my, in my third, fourth years. And so I was like, I better finish this. But then when I was done, I was like, well, what else am I going to do? I thought about teaching, uh, but then the idea of doing another year of school to become a teacher, and then my parents weren't into me being a teacher because I was there, you know, pride and joy, they're the smartest one. They wanted me to be like a space scientist or some sort of whatever, right? And so just a little bit of, you know, parental pressure there. And I decided to get a job in engineering, which... In, in the long term just was not a fit and I did not enjoy it. I don't I don't really enjoy I didn't really enjoy any part of it for four years that I was oh doing. wow yeah and was that engineering job was that your first job or did you have that was my job? first job so my first job my first official career job was working for Bombardier wow and so you're going to work every day not probably really feeling fulfilled but getting the all. job done yeah. My favorite part was the breaks, like lunch break and talking about other things other than the latest engineering design. I didn't really care about that stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, I found the work monotonous. I found it not creative. I found it uh, just, yeah, soul-sucking would be another word. I mean, you know, what, what happens is you, you get into this groove of making money and a routine of, you know, commuting every day, 45 minutes there, 45 minutes back. And, and so that's why, you know, I was so bored of my life that I decided to start a musical theater company. So while I was working at Barbardier, I start launched my own musical theater company. I was doing a couple of shows before then, and I realized that these musical theater companies suck. Let me do it the way I think it should be. Because when I did my last year at McGill, I was president of my musical theater company, and I was take you know, and I knew how to run a good a good show, good organization. So I decided to start my own theater company, and that went really well. I would work about 30, 40 hours a week on that outside of my job. Wow! And I, and I loved it, and it was just it, it, that's that's my that's probably why I lasted four years because I was I was heavily involved in something else. It got me out of the house because I didn't like living with my parents. And so I was out there doing this stuff uh, for four years while I was working. And actually, it's funny because around the same time that I left engineering, I also left uh, the theater company and just stopped doing both um, because I think it was a filler for the void I had in my life. And so the theater company went well. We grew it to 150 people in about four years. And we did some really amazing musicals. And I got to direct, produce, and perform. And it was just a lot of, and I helped, help mentor a lot of young people it was amazing it was an amazing experience and so then how did you how did you decide or what was there a catalyst that made you decide it was time to leave engineering I got fired uh, wasn't you like did a, yeah I got let go I mean you know uh, the work was you know I, I wasn't really good at what I was doing I wasn't a star um I um you know the, the project I, I you know like imagine I mean here's the thing if I'm bored I'm not going to do a good job. Like I wasn't into it. I was bored. Um, you know, a couple of times I would just, I fell asleep just doing the work. Like it was just really bad. And eventually slow and slow and steadily, and then they eventually said, well, I don't think it's working out. They gave me a package, packaged me out and I left. And when I was looking to, what do I do now? You know, I, people are like, oh, here's a couple of other engineering jobs. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do engineering anymore. And then then I tried to look at other jobs and they're like, well, you can start from the beginning. I was like, I just spent four years. I don't start from scratch again. Yeah. And so 
I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I really wasn't sure. One of my one of my cousins said, "Hey, Bobby, why don't you like do an MBA? You know, maybe think about that." And so I. Um, and what was interesting too is at this point, my confidence in myself was university. University took away my confidence of being a smart person. Right. All my life, I was a smart person. University, I failed courses, lost my scholarships, had I graduated a really low GPA. So I felt didn't I didn't feel like I was smart anymore. And then the job made me feel like I wasn't smart or competent in much in things anymore. So it was a really, you know, it was like an, an eight year slide into your mindset. And, uh, but, you know, so then they said, why don't you write the GMAT? And I said, okay. And here's where things are interesting. I wrote the GMAT and I aced it. And I was like, wow. <laughs> wait, wait, maybe I am smart. <laughs> maybe I am smart. Maybe I'm still smart. Maybe I have something. I, I got 96 percentile on the test i'm like whoa like, wow that's, that's pretty good and so, <laughs> that's pretty good and i was like okay maybe i have so then i applied to do an mba and then i got a scholarship and uh so then i went to, i went to my master and did my mba there and that's where i totally thrived I basically found my mojo again like i found my because i i was there because and i also i originally applied for their engineering mba program that is called the management innovation technology and i was like wait a second i hate this stuff i don't want to do this let, yeah. me switch, let me switch into marketing because I kind of like the marketing piece of my theater company when I did it, like PR, promotion, things like that. Let me do, let me do marketing and maybe switch careers. And I'd, I'd, actually, I'd actually started doing an MBA because I wanted to get into performing arts. I wanted to, I wanted to produce film and, tele, film and television. That's what I wanted to do. Wow. So I the, best, the, the best way to, to transition to do a marketing MBA and maybe do marketing for an entertainment company. That's kind of where I was thinking. So, uh, and when I was there, everything just took off. Like I was so invested in what I was doing. I was so focused. I remember sitting in the library one time and I was just sitting there and Bobby or someone said, Bobby, you know, I gotta ask you a question. They're like what? And these two people are there. like, you always seem so into your work. Like that's really weird. Why, why are you so into your work? Like, and compare that back to my engineering where I, I, didn't, I hated it. Uh, I said, well, I think the big thing is I, I choose to be here. I know what I want. I know why I'm here. I know what I need to get to where I need to go. And that's why I'm doing and, you know, when I used to work in engineering, my boss would tie me going to the washroom, and I hated it. I hated oh, it. I hate that. Right. And here, <laughs> I can get up whenever I want. I'm not timed. It's on my, it's on my own terms. And so things went really well. You know, I did the opposite of what I did in engineering days. I was president of the association. I worked my butt off, got straight A's. I was valedictorian. Uh, and just completely uh, found my mojo, found my leadership, found my brains, found everything again. It was actually... It was really, uh, really fulfilling to, to have that, that, that two years of rejuvenation and rebirth, you know. That's amazing. And then coming yeah. out of that, um, coming out of that program, you actually ended up at Kraft. Yeah, although it's funny. I, you did a co-op first at HP. No, no. Well, I had three co-ops. So HP was one of them. Yeah. Uh, so we had three co-ops for four months, which I found interesting. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't find I did very well with them though. Like I didn't feel like I was a star. So it was interesting. I was a star on campus, but I wasn't a star at the workplace. And then when I started working at Kraft, again, it took a while to get that first job. I thought I'd, I thought I'd be shooting for a job, but that's when the tech bubble burst and the recession hit. Yeah. And so it was terrible timing because, you know, I was, I, I remember before the bubble hit, we were all thinking, okay, I'm going to have this cushy job of, starting at 85,000 plus and I'll hit, hit six figures or whatever really soon. But as soon as I got out of it, every, expectations were completely shattered. And, uh, you know, when I got offered, a, I finally got offered a job eight months later uh, at, 
at craft for 60,000. I was like, you know what, I'll just take it, take it. And I just did it. So I couldn't get a job in entertainment and I thought brand marketing would be the, the best way to kind of grow and segue across is what I was thinking. Right. And so you've said a couple of interesting things because um, like twice now, maybe more, but twice yeah. you've said, um, I just didn't fit in or I wasn't a star. What, what is it that makes you feel that way? Well, I mean, I guess the difference was so jarring. You know, when I was at school, I felt completely confident in control. Uh, I, you know, was getting straight A's. I was leading the, the MBA council as the president and I'm very firm in my decisions and just, you know, um, partially because I think that there was the context that, yeah, I'm the president, so I have to meet the balls, the, you know, the, the buck stops here. So let me just, you know, here's, and I would be very confident with, with telling my directors, you need to do a better job. And my VPs, hey, step up. Like, you know, like, it was actually quite interesting. Whereas when I went into the corporate world, my first job was, uh, the title was called product assistant, basically below uh, an assistant manager to a manager, to a director, to a VP. And uh, uh, in retrospect, status is something that kind of slowed me down. Authority slowed me down. When I was empowered as president of the, of the MBA Association, or when I was MBA, president of the uh, Musical Theater Association in, uh, in uh, McGill, I thrived. But when I was put at a lower totem pole situation, I just didn't have a, I had a hard time with process, with authority, yeah. with my title. And so, yeah, and, and I start to realize that maybe I don't fit in this, in this, in this structure. And so what did you, you ended up um, leaving Kraft. Yeah. Um, you went to Unilever. Yeah got to work on one of my favorite campaigns of all time, yeah. Dove Beauty campaign, which yes. is phenomenal. Um, for you, was that a good experience? Uh, it was good and bad. Uh, it was good in the sense that I worked with some amazing people. It was a very uh, empowering, uplifting program. I learned a ton, uh, but uh, a couple things. One is I still wasn't fitting. Like um, when, I, when I first got the job, I, the reason I took the job is because the person who interviewed me would be my manager because I've been screwed over by bad managers all my life. So at Bombardier, the managers I had were terrible. And then uh, I was like, you know what? I want to make sure I have a good man. And when I was a craft, I had a series of bad managers that did champion me or support me. And that's why I was stuck there. So I had to leave. And then when you ever came along, the inter person who interviewed me, she had won a marker of the year award. And I was like, oh, I want to work under her. And I said very specifically, how long you, you've been in this job for a couple of years? How long are you here? Because I don't want to show up and you leave. She's like, well, I, you know, I got to be honest with you, I'm probably ready for a transition, but that'll probably happen in three to six months. And when I started the job, a week in, she was moved. Oh, and, no. And the person they brought in, and the reason I thought it'd be a good fit is because she had all her strengths were things that I lacked and all of her weaknesses were things that I was good at. So I thought we'd make a good team. And then the person they brought in was someone who basically had all my strengths, but was better and more experienced. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, be valuable to her. Right. And so it, it just didn't work out. And the other thing that happened was I started working crazy hours. So my wife and I were trying to start a family. I was working 80 hours a week. And then, um, you know, we were having trouble having kids. And then uh, in January of that year, uh, the next year, I had my first ever anxiety attack. On the job. Oh, my goodness. And it was it was jarring because I'm I'm such a calm, 
chill guy for the most part. You know, they always say, Bob, you're so relaxed. It's like, it's like you're lying in a ditch. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, so I had the anxiety attack. And I remember her telling, I went to the counselor and she told me, I was like, and I laughed. I don't get anxiety attacks. Like, what are you talking about? But everything she, everything I, I described was exactly that, which was very interesting. Uh, and then about, and then three months later, I'd gotten some testing in December. And three months later, the doctor said, hey, listen, we, you haven't come in for your results for three months. We need to talk about your results. I was like, oh, okay. So then I came and did a test. And they said, okay, come back in another week because there's something going on with your results we're concerned about. And so I came in the next week. And the other thing that was happening too was I was working um, 80 hours a week, usually at 8 a.m. to about 9.30 p.m. every night and then four to 12 hours on weekends because I had a laptop. So it was kind of crazy. But I was finding in the new year that I was fatigued and I was getting headaches and I had to leave work at like six o'clock. And so in March, the doctor said, well, a normal blood sugar level is fasting blood sugar level 6.2 or lower. And your blood sugar in December was 12. And your blood sugar in March is 16. And if you don't get control of it, that's why you have headaches. That's why you, you know, that's your base, your pancreas, you know, like you're, you're yeah. nothing, nothing, nothing changed your life except for the fact that you have this really stressful job. So your pancreas basically snaps and I can't take it anymore. And your blood sugar is out of control. And if you don't get out of control, it's going to kill you. And so I went back to my employer and my HR. And I said, look, I, here's what I propose. I need to take two weeks off to just get my health back under control. And, and then I like to scale my hours back to something reasonable. And I said 50 hours a week, uh, which is still for some people is not that reasonable <laughs> at all. Yeah, reasonable. Because well, you know, they, they screw up with your brain, right? They do this mindset. You're like, you need to work these crazy long hours, right? Yeah. When I was a profit, I worked an average of 55 to 60 hours, right? So it, it was the whole mindset within brand marketing. So I told them this. I, I blame them. I partially blame them for getting it because they said according to the results i contracted the situation sometime in december so i've been working on the job for four months at this point um four or five months and then finally i said i need to i need to take this break and then within three months they gave me a package and said see you later wow and so it, it was it was interesting because i was like well you know um, I was delighted. I was delighted they gave me a great package. I don't even for eight months, but they gave me a really nice package. I was like, okay, because clearly I think that I blamed them, and so they were feeling guilty about that. Yeah. When I saw that package, I, I said, "Are you serious? This is great." I, <laughs> I was delighted. I'm out of here. See you later. I'm out of see ya. And I, I, I was very <laughs> excited. I went downstairs, bought some thank you cards. I wrote about a dozen thank you cards to people at my work, and I sent those thank you cards to everybody, which was nice. Uh, and uh, um, yeah, and then, and then I was like, okay, I'm just I'm glad to be gone, and 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 then I got to figure out what's next. And so you get a package. What do you do? <laughs> do you well, take some time what's, off? Well, it's interesting actually. Uh, you know, life hits you at the same time. So um, within about a month and a half, uh, my wife um, uh, almost died of E. coli. And what? So, yeah, yeah. And then she was an she almost died that day, and then she was in ICU for a week. Then the hospital wow. for another week. And I'm just sitting there stunned, like, what the heck is going on here? Luckily, I was off too because I could take, take take care of her and whatnot. And then after that, and then and then she was home for, and then I took care of her for about two months. And we're like, okay, what's important to us in our lives? Like, we're, like, you know, we're trying to have a family, we're trying to get settled, and now we have health problems and job problems. And oh my god, what are we gonna do? And so we had to just rethink everything. And uh, yeah, it was a very interesting time. And so that's when I decided to finally dive into figuring, okay, what do I really want to do? And, you know, for years, people have been saying things like, hey, Bobby, like, 
Uh, I had I had a motivational speaker friend years ago say, Bobby, you should go to motivational speaker. You're really good. You're good at you have emotional connection to the audience. I think you'd be really good. So I used to, I used to work at this program for for a gifted high school kid called Shad Valley, and I would teach there, and I, I loved it. I was very good at it, and the kids loved me. And uh, uh, he's like, he's like, you know, this is what he does. He's like, why don't you do it? You'd be really good. I'm trying to. I was like, no, no I'm trying to build up my career in brand marketing. And then when I was in brand marketing, I, we'd often have offsites, and I would often volunteer to do like a team building event or an facilitate an exercise. And I would, you know, run the group, and and everyone's like, man, you're really good at this. Like, you're really good at going through the motions and then giving us direction and then relating it back to the business and what are the, what are the key learnings and the debrief. And you know, I thought about doing living. Uh, I was like, I love my marketing, but you know, like, I want to make it big here and then transition over to film and television. And then uh, and then finally, when I was off, I talked to my, I call him a counselor, my four best friends from my university days in the I said, look, here's what's going on. I'm not sure I want to go back to brand marketing after four years. Uh, it's really soul sucking. Well, it's not, it's not so. I love the work. I love the people. I love the work. But it's really, really time consuming. And now I have to worry about my health and stuff. And then they said, you know, have you thought about like becoming like a motivational speaker? And I was like, you know what? I have because everyone's telling me for the past like five years. And so let me, let me figure this out. So I, do, I did a whole personal branding dive for about three months to figure it out. And I, certain things came up, like Bobby loves people, performing, presenting, persuasion, influence, nurturing, and diversity. Those are my top five personal brand elements. And from that, there's like, you know, certain things I could do, but I was like, you know what? Speaker, trainer is right there. Yeah. Well, let me just, let me just do it. And so in the fall of that year, I decided to launch a business becoming a speaker and trainer. And so how did you discover your top five? Well, I mean, I've read a lot of articles online about, uh, you know, figuring out your, your, your assessing your, yourself, your values, your skills, your personality traits, as well as some personal branding articles. I'm like, you know, what, let me just, you know, I, I know a lot about branding because of my work in brand marketing. Yeah. So I took a lot of that learning, like the insights and stuff and applied it to myself as a person, as a business, and then did that. And then that, that eventually was the beginnings and the foundation of, of my own current personal branding signature methodology that I use that I've been now teaching for over 10 years. But back then I didn't have anything. Uh, but I kind of went through this whole process and I could see that, okay, based on this, here's what's coming up. And uh, the themes that were, you know, I worked with a coach too, to help me figure that stuff out. And, uh, and uh, those five things screamed at me and said, yeah, professional speaker fits all five of those things. Yeah. I think um, like, I just kind of went through this in the last couple of years. And I think working with a coach helps, helps a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the thing about a coach is that, you know, it provides you a lot of uh, focus, accountability, soundboarding, things like that. There's lots of things that a coach can offer to you that you don't realize. And so I think uh, they helped me see, and it also helped validate what I was coming up with, right? I was doing most of the work, but it, it would be validated by, by his feedback. Yeah. Well, and it's also too, like the ones I've worked with anyways, it's just like they guide you in the right direction. Like, have you thought of this or maybe da da? And you're like, oh, I maybe thought of that 10 years ago, but I haven't thought of that recently. And so they do kind of help get you on the right path if you're working with someone good who you connect with. Yeah, exactly. I've also had bad coaches too. Oh, sure, for sure. I mean, the, and the other thing, you know, do you want a coach or do you want a consultant? Because sometimes you want someone to tell you what to do. So like when I, when I work with people, I'm not, a, I'm not really a coach. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a both, I'm both a coach and consultant. I'm a consultant. So I, yeah. I coach both people. Uh, because sometimes I help them figure out for themselves, and other times I tell them, no, no, just do this. 
Yeah, it's true. Cause I was just learning more about coaching and how it's like, you're asking them questions so that they can come up with the answer. But I'm, right. I'm, I've been a consultant for years. So I'm yeah. just used to telling people. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. And it's just faster, right? And some people value it. They want to just get to the point. Let's, let's not, let's not spend six hours exploring. Let's, why don't you tell me based on insight what it is and let's move forward. Yeah. And yeah. So people like that. And I like that too sometimes. <laughs> just tell you what to do. Yeah. So um, you still do some coaching. Do you still do some GMAT coaching? Uh, I have. I mean, I haven't really, I mean, I've been, I've been doing GMAT stuff for years. Um, you know, I taught for Kaplan and Veritas Prep. And then I also uh, did that on the side as part of my consulting stuff that I would do on the side as an entrepreneur. When I started as an entrepreneur, as a speaker, and, I, and, when I, and at the time when I didn't have speaking gigs, I would do GMAT coaching, MBA application consulting. Now, and then I wrote a book on GMAT, which, which is fantastic. I love the book, but it's not a primary thing I do, but you know, it's something I can do if I need to. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think as an entrepreneur, or, I was going to say most of my coaching consulting now is in career transition, pivoting or personal branding or building thought leadership branding with content and things like that. Yeah. And so when you first, um, like when you went through that personal um, self-discovery and you decided to move into training, what were some of the bigger challenges that you had when you first embarked on that? Well, I think the biggest challenge is always about uh, you valuing yourself and pricing yourself, right? So, you know, you never know what to charge. And, uh, you know, uh, I did a survey and I got a bunch of people to answer it and the pricing differentials were all over the place. Yeah. I had, I had that speaker, uh, motivational speaker friend who offered me a lot of advice uh, around, you know, what to, what to charge in the beginning and then grow it. And I started to realize that what happened was I would charge a certain amount. And I remember the, when I first started out, I would charge people $500 for me to do a speech. And then eventually it became a thousand and 1500. And then pretty soon there was a lower end where I wouldn't get out of bed to do anything. So that became 500, 800, 1200 pretty soon. It just went higher and higher. And so you, you now have, here's my standard, here's my standard, and here's my low end where I'm not going to move for you. And uh, that's kind of how I started building that up. But I learned the hard way, you know, at the, at the time I didn't actually have a coach for that. I had mentors and advisors, but no specific coach for that. Yeah. Uh, only when I got a coach did things go a lot better, more effective for what I was doing. Yeah, well, I think uh, someone just described the other day, um, like you can kind of like muddle your way through yeah. and do trial and error. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes if you have a coach or a mentor, it just gives you that more streamlined path, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the... the, the the cash 22 because in the beginning you, you don't have any money so like do you want to invest the time to be more effective to build it up quickly or do you want to go slowly and so you know i was going slowly at the time i didn't have the cash flow at the time so i was you know doing slowly but i think that, that the beginning thing of pricing yourself is really difficult the other part that's difficult too is as a, someone who is very extroverted and was in a structured environment uh, structuring your day to make sure you get stuff done versus sitting all day watching oprah you have to be very careful about how that no because there's times where sure. all the time you know, I, I remember one time I, uh, you know, just I had lunch, turn on the TV, and next thing you know, I saw two episodes of Star Trek, and then I, I saw a movie of the week, and all of a sudden it's 4 p.m. Like, what am I doing? Like, I got to work. And, you know, you just get sucked into that stuff. So this is, you know, this is pretty, like, you know, social media and stuff, right? So, like, uh, I, I was having trouble with that. So I think that was, that was the, in terms of how I managed my time, I think, was a big challenge because I was alone, and I'm an extrovert, so I think that was a big challenge. Um and I think the other challenge, of course, is just, you know, making sure you have the right niche, which I think a lot of people don't, they don't know how to niche themselves or how to really pitch themselves. And I, I don't think I did a good job of that in the beginning. I just kind of, as you said, muddled through it. 
Yeah, yeah. And so when when you um, you have your challenges, probably in the beginning, maybe through probably through the road actually when you're running a business. But when did you think, oh, this was the best decision? This is really I'm on the right path. This is what I should be doing. Did That's you come a good question? Me? That's a good question. I mean, uh, hmm. I mean, there's different moments that kind of stick out of my mind. I mean, I remember the first talk I ever did and it felt pretty natural, you know, and the feedback was good. I'm like, okay, okay, it's my first one ever. I, I didn't just, didn't, didn't destroy anything. I think people liked it. Okay, that's good. And then I remember within that first year, I got uh, booked for a speaking gig in Portugal and I got to fly uh, to Portugal. And even though it was, a, it was like a four or five day conference and how I spoke at the very end, so I got to hang out and go to whatever lectures I wanted to, go on all the different trips, do, do all the parties, and I had to stay, stay in this nice hotel for four days. I was like, I can get used to this. Yeah, like, this is great. This, this is pretty good. <laughs> like they're they're flying me over, paying for this, and they're paying me for my speech. Like that, that was awesome. I was like, this is fantastic. And, and then I think finally, I think finally when uh, I, I knew that I had gotten to a point where I had made it and I was going to do okay was the first TEDx talk. I got asked to do the first TEDx talk. And at this point, I had invested in social media. I had uh, 100,000 followers on, on Twitter, which is where I got a lot of attention. And I started building an influence, uh, an influencer brand there. Uh, and I got the TEDx talk and then very soon I got uh, my agent. And that's kind of when things started to really, I think, take off in terms of what I was doing and how I was doing it. And so um, when we're looking at like starting out versus maybe peak year, how many like how many talks are you doing in a year well it varies i mean you know right now things are different because of covid but yeah. I mean, uh you know uh depending on how you position yourself i, I think at the max i would do in a year would be about 50 but there are other speakers i wanted to do 200 now i now there's that there's that drawback behind do you want to do 200 i mean sure i could make way more money if i want to do that many um maybe before i had kids or got married sure but when I had kids and got married, not at all. Yeah. I'd rather do less uh, and, and, you know, and make them more expensive or focus on coaching in my online program and scale that business. So, uh, but, you know, I think anywhere between 20 to 50 per year is kind of the, where I was, uh, where I was at. And were there any, um, where you got invited to speak at, or you ended up speaking at where you were just kind of like, I cannot believe this is happening. Like in terms of the awe aspect, like wow, yeah. this is so cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mentioned the Portugal thing earlier on in my year. I mean, the some of the trips I've had, like the one to uh, the one to Dubai, was actually quite amazing because um, they threw a lot of money at us, like just lavish celebrations and trips, and like we went on this incredible safari, and we went uh, went to this Bedouin camp, and then I went to the the Burj Khalifa and went to the top there, and I went to this the world's fastest roller coaster, and just uh, it was just an amazing, amazing. I was like, oh, I get to do this. this is so cool. Uh, India was pretty cool too, as well. So was Portugal. Like, uh, sorry, sorry, not Portugal. Poland was the other one. I mean, they're all. Uh, I got to go to Tunisia. Like those types of trips were phenomenal. Right. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. But I also, I mean, I also enjoyed being on stage and with you know a lot of really awesome people. Like, Hasten Hustle was great because I got to technically speak on the same stage as Gary Vaynerchuk, and people came up to me saying, you know, your talk was either the second best next to Gary's or in some ways was better. And I'm like, wow, holy cow, like, that's awesome. Like, yeah, you, you know, 
not to slag Gary, but you know, I, I was listening to his podcast and his talk and his podcast, the messaging is all the same. So it's not like you really got anything new from being there. Um, but you, I, I didn't know. So I was like, oh my God, I got so much information from you. It was great. That's good. And I'm glad I, 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 I bugged uh, Shauna, the, the organizer to, I told her, give me, just give me seven minutes. Just give me seven minutes. I will wow your audience. I will win the crowd. <laughs> I, I told her that. And she said, sure, I'll give you seven minutes. And I she asked for 15. She gave me seven. I said, fine. I took 12. But she, <laughs> she didn't mind because she said, Bobby, be back with people love you. And so that was great. So I'm glad I did that one. So it's one, that's, that's probably one of the best speeches I've ever done. So when I, when I look back at my, my talks, I think, okay, that was a really awesome moment. And so, and I, if I could do that the rest of my life, I would be super happy. Well, and you know, what's interesting hard now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. well, we'll see, like maybe it's online now. It might be moving, maybe it'll move to online. No, but what, no, what I mean is though, I'm a performer by nature. So like all the musical theater and speaking, I love being on stage in front of a thousand people. So with the now, uh, you know, I don't know how often I'll be able to do that again. And that's the main thing that feeds my soul. So even though I'm pivoting and doing more coaching consulting, do I want to do that the rest of my life? I don't actually. The truth is I could have 10, 15 coaching clients, you know, every, every month that I'm working with and I'm happy helping them, which is, which is fine. But does that really fill my soul? The truth is it doesn't. Uh, I'm doing it to pivot and pay the bills, but long-term I don't, that's not what I really want to do. I want to find something else to do. Well, you know, it's interesting because I've, I had this question in the back of my mind that I wanted to ask you and it kind of relates to this is like, what is it that drives you? Like, what is it? And part of it is you've just talked about, like, you love being on stage and you like probably the feedback and the energy and imparting like great knowledge to people. But is that what drives you? What is it that you think is your internal drive that makes you want to do that? Well, usually, usually the biggest internal driver is knowing my why statement, right? So my why statement is this, there are lost, stuck, or unfulfilled leaders everywhere. And what that means is everywhere I go, I meet people who feel lost in their careers, stuck in their jobs, or unfulfilled in their work or their relationships. And I've been there too. I had four different careers. And I think that too many of us follow a path of success defined by the people. We uh, create narratives that make us stagnant or complacent. And we don't realize that we have the opportunity to be uh, to not be that 80% who are dispatched or unhappy with their jobs, but to actually create something that's fulfilling and that's more aligned, that's more impactful. And so everything, I, and I know what those people feel. I know how they're, because I was there too. And so everything I do from being a parent to my kids, to being a friend to my friends, a husband to my wife and son to my, my parents, as well as a professional speaker and coach to all the people I serve, that why statement tells me that people feel this way and yeah. everything I do from my content, my speaking, my coaching, my programs, you name it, it's all designed to help people go from good to great to pivot, to turn, to transition, to ramp up their lives in that way to create more focus, meaning, and impact. And so if I can do it and I've seen other people do it, why not help as many people as I can? No, that's amazing. You, that was so well put. That was amazing. And I think I've been saying for a long time, so yeah. <laughs> yeah well, but now I think I, I think I think I captured that in pretty good in one minute. That was that was really good. Um, like now is probably one of the most critical times to be able to pivot 
and think yes. outside the box and figure out something else, right? Absolutely. Like this is the time now to, if you're going to pivot, uh, this is the time to do it. If you want to build a side hustle, this is the time to do it. If you want to ramp up your online presence, your thought leadership brand, your personal brand, find more alignment, find more meaning, ramp it up and get more opportunities. This is the time to do it because right now, you know, everyone's thinking about this. And so that's why I'm, I'm trying to focus more on my energy on helping people with their personal brand and find more alignment. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, so I'm super aware of your time because I know you're super busy, <laughs> but um, I have a couple of like rapid fire questions if you're okay. Sure, far that. away. Um, okay, so uh, if you were cheering for a sports team, which team is it? Uh, the Toronto Raptors or the Montreal Canadiens? Oh, Canadians, Habs. Well, I grew up on the East Coast, so I was a Habs fan my whole life. I saw them win the Stanley Cup many times. It's been a joyous part of it's good to be, it's, you know, when I saw the Raptors win, amazing. When I saw the, yeah. uh, the, the Canadians win when I was a kid and even when I was older, fantastic. I was in Quebec when they won in 1993. That was fantastic. Like, <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, the, you know, you, you, you're, I'm loyal all the way. I, I still would love the Leafs to win the Cup someday in my lifetime, but they never have. So I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, well, listen, I think the latest news is um, if the NHL continues, um, the Leafs overcoming their loss to the Zamboni driver. Right. I don't know if you heard about that. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember that. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so we'll see. Um, okay, what is one thing that your mom or your dad always told you that you still remember to this day? Uh, well, my, my dad always tells me there is no tomorrow. That's like the best advice he ever gave. There is no tomorrow. What that means, I think he meant he meant to get stuff done now versus wait till later. That's his name. But the second message I kind of drive from it now is always be in the moment be mindful in the moment to make the most of every moment. So I think that's something that I take from that for, for me. And I think for my mom, I mean, my mom always tells me things about being a good person to other people and making them feel better. And so that, that you know, she always tells me to do the right thing, but you know, like, you, you know, your, your, your uncle died. So please call your aunt and, you know, call her, let her know, let her, let her know that you're thinking about her. She's always telling me to do things like that. And I, I honestly, I'm not really good at those things. Uh, and, but she's always telling me. And so I think the lesson from her is always to, you know, be, be a supportive, loving, caring person uh, and just do the right thing as you can to help people. And so I take that all the time when it comes to my relationships. Oh, that's amazing. My mom sounds like your mom, <laughs> which is, you know, a great mom. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this last question I actually stole from Tim Ferriss, but I really, really love it, um, is if you could have a billboard anywhere with your own message on it, what would the message say? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, it depends on how much, how much space I have for text, but I mean, <laughs> I think one of the things I always talk about is, uh, you know, fight for your life, right? Fight for the life you want to live, fight for the woman you want to marry, fight for the, the, the job that fulfills you, fight for uh, the, the causes you believe in, fight for every aspect of fulfillment you want in your life fight for your health to have a healthy body because if you don't fight if not you then who if not now then when and if and if you are willing to fight uh then i'll fight for you too oh i love that i loved actually what you had said earlier too about um and this relates to this like fight for your life fight for your change you know mm -hmm. like if you are in a job or a career or a situation that you or maybe not feeling fulfilled or happy, it's your job to fight 
to have that change. Well, and that's, and that's why I say that if you're willing to fight for your life, I'm willing to help you. Because one of the hardest things people do is ask for help. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's true. It's one of the things that I do is like, I'm really good at giving. So I'll give, give, give. Right, but right, when right. someone tries to give to me, I'm like, not so, it's not that I'm not ungracious of receiving, but I don't expect it and I never ask. Right, right. So yeah, it's true. It's true. It's one thing that everybody should learn to uh, be a little bit more better at. Awesome. So um, I know Bobby that people will want to connect with you further. So where can they find you online? Well, my two websites are www.rayallen.com, which is my speaking and training coaching company. The other one is dypb.ca, which is discovery personal brand for all the personal branding stuff that uh, we want. And we're also launching a personal branding discovery course very soon in the next week or so. Uh, and then across social media, you can follow me on LinkedIn on my profile page or my company page. So just you know, follow me. I've kind of maxed out my connections. So just follow me there. Or across social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. My typical handle is Rayhan Bobby. Okay, great. That's awesome. I'll add that to the show notes as well. Please, and please. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you are uh, very articulate and I love the way that you phrase things um, because you make it sound so eloquent but simple. That, that's high praise because I always say that about my wife. That she's <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so imagine how good she is. <laughs> 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 I'll have to meet yeah. her one day. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I appreciate that. And I, 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 I do this for a long time and I do love helping people. So I, I've articulated it before. It's kind of fun to kind of go through all the way from beginnings all the way to, like we went through this whole chronological thing. So, I mean, normally I don't talk for this long about this stuff, but it's kind of fun to kind of go through the end, that entire process. And my life story was basically presented uh, here for the most part. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. Awesome.